Together, welcome Pastor Mark here tonight. This is Celebration Church, but it's more than just a building or a church. We have a calling to be a place where people can find a relationship with God instead of religion. A place where freedom is found and acceptance given, and every person can discover their purpose and experience the kind of fulfillment only God can give. Together we will raise, lead, and empower a generation to change the world. Here, Jesus is famous, and all the glory goes to God. This is celebration. This is our family. Welcome home. Hello, and welcome to Celebration Church. Greetings to our campuses over at Appleton and Stevens Point. Joining with us, and all those who watch us on the internet, all over the world. This is our uh, first Wednesday, and if that's a little confusing to you, it's because technically this is the second Wednesday, <laughs> but it's our first Wednesday of getting together. The first Wednesday of the month, we gather for time of worship, praise, and just some in-depth Bible study, uh, and of course, last week was all holidays and stuff, so we kicked it to the second Wednesday, but it's still our first Wednesday. All right. So, uh, been pondering a lot about what, what to go, what direction to go with this thing. And uh, I thought, I want to uh, share with you, I want to do a more in-depth Bible study. I've talked about some of these things before, just in little mini segments, but I want to kind of delve into it. Uh, I was doing this with our T1 students and had a fun time doing it and found myself talking to other people about it and people had questions. And I thought, you know, I'll just take some of these first Wednesdays. I have no idea how many of these will take. Knowing me, we could be here eight years from now, still working on it. I don't think it'll be that bad. I want to answer the question, big question, all right? And we should need fatter markers, by the way. Why are we here? What is all this about? Why is all You start to understand why we're here, then all of a sudden everything starts to make sense. Uh, a lot of stuff that we do, a lot of stuff that we experience, a lot of the challenges that you go through, the whole concept of a prayer and everything, all of a sudden starts to come into focus. Uh, that's why things are the way they are. And I want to encourage you, I know none of you have your Bibles with you, or maybe one or two of you do. Um, let me encourage you, there's one fortunate soul. <laughs> Anybody else? Most of you, of you, oh wow, good. Uh, actually, to bring your Bible, I know we have the magic Bible up on the screen, but uh, and we'll do that, but it would be nice if you actually bring it and kind of get familiar with where things are. And some of you are kind of, you don't know your Bibles very well, and you'll still have to go to the table of contents to find out where a book is. That's okay. Not a problem. That way you get a chance to figure out where things are at. We're going to start at the beginning, all right, very first verse in the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we know that all things that are in existence are in existence because of him. But then we get to verse two. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, so what was the last time you know that God made something that was void and formless and full of darkness? He generally doesn't do that. So we have to assume that something happened between verse 1 and verse 2. 
Now, the Bible doesn't give us a whole lot of details about this, but they are there, and we're going to do some digging to find them. Of course, the great cataclysmic event in the history of the universe, as far as we know, was the fall of Satan, Lucifer. Um, Something happens that causes him to launch this massive rebellion against God. It doesn't tell us here, and there's really no place in the Bible where it gives you all, everything exactly laid out. But it's there if you dig it. We're going to go digging. Um, Jesus said in Luke, the 10th chapter, verse 18, one very short verse in the Bible, he replied, he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. It's really an interesting verse because here he is, a man in the earth, not everybody even quite grasps the concept yet that he's God in the flesh, but comments like this obviously put him in the God category. I mean, if he was there and he saw this event, he is just not a regular guy, all right? This is something he was, so he actually witnessed this event. What event was it? Now, if look at Revelation, uh, the 12th chapter, the last book of the Bible, and uh, starting at verse 1, and Re- Revelation is really kind of hard to read if you've never read it. Uh, the Bible actually promises a special blessing on those who read it. But uh, you need a special blessing because <laughs> I don't know what he's talking about. All right? Now, lots of people have opinions about what they're talking about, and many people have written books, and they're very dogmatic about exactly what it means. But they don't know. They're guessing. A little humility wouldn't hurt some of these guys. Because this is one of these books of the Bible where you kind of go and, you know, it's really hard to kind of track uh, all the symbolism, how much of it is symbolism, how much is what the other. Anyway, we get into a period of symbolism for sure here, and you'll see how we know that. Starts at verse 1 of chapter 12. Now, a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. Now, depending on who you read or whatever, uh, the, uh, there's not really a woman who looks like this per se. It's a symbolism of the nation of Israel. Okay, the 12 crowns being the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, clothed with the sun, moon under her feet. Now, she was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to where? The earth. Well, the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so it might devour her child the moment he was born. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule the nations with an iron scepter, talking about the Messiah. So this is very broad, you know, and the woman is talking about, not talking about Mary, this is, you know, the symbolism of uh, the Messiah coming through the promised uh, nation of Israel. And it talks about Satan uh, here, who, referred to as a dragon, 
And, and then it has this one little thing here. It says where its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky. Now, we'll see in other places where Satan is referred to as a star. So this is the singular only place that we can find in the scriptures where we get an idea that a third of the angels fell with Satan. Now, so it's not a big deal, but we know that, you know, he wasn't alone. This is was, this was part of this big rebellion. So a third of them uh, re rebel against God. He's trying to destroy this Messiah coming into the earth. And it says, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. Again, all symbolism. I don't, you know, that's not exactly how things literally happen. We just went through Christmas. That's how things literally happen. So we know that we got all these angels up here. La, 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 la. Dotted angels all over the place. So a third of them get caught up in this rebellion and get slammed to this planet. Literally, this planet. Why this planet? I have no idea. It could have been another planet, and then the whole thing would have happened somewhere else. It doesn't really matter. It just it happened to be this planet. All right? So now let's look at the Old Testament. We're looking at Ezekiel. So you want to take a left and drive into the Old Testament. Ezekiel is a rather big book. And Ezekiel is prophesying. Now, one of the things about the Old Testament prophets is the way they prophesy, it's really kind of hard to track who they're talking about at any given moment. Uh, I don't know what they were experiencing when they were doing this, but it sounds like they're talking about one guy and then suddenly they're talking about someone else. And it really, it's, they're not easy reads. You know, if you're, if you're going to start reading the Bible for the first time, start with the New Testament. It's a lot easier. <laughs> you can always go back and work out the Old Testament. But it's, a, it's a really rather complex. A lot of the prophecies about the Messiah, even when David was writing Psalms, he's writing, he's talking about this, that, and the other, and all of a sudden he starts talking about something that's literally, literally a prophecy of the Messiah to come, uh, which I'm not sure how many people even caught it. You wouldn't catch it, except that we know what it is now. And in the New Testament, uh, particularly like Matthew and stuff, would say, well, this was written to fulfill the scripture that said such and such. And you go back and look at such and such, it's stuck, stuck in the middle of all this other talking, but yet he knew that in this section, he's talking about the Messiah. Exactly how they clarified all this stuff, I don't know, it's uh, out of my pay league, I'll tell you. But uh, anyway, so let's look at Ezekiel. Now he's prophesying about this king, talking about this king, I believe he's a Babylonian king, doesn't really matter, whatever, but uh, uh, talking about this king. Now the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel says, verse 11 of chapter 28. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You are the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Well, right now we know he's not talking literally about this king because this king wasn't in the garden of Eden. This king, Babylonian king or whoever it was, was not the seal of perfection in any way, shape, or form. So he's talking to this king, but who he's really talking to is Satan, who is inspiring this king, which is good for us to know. A lot of times, you know, we talk about in the, in the New Testament where that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Our, our, most of our battles are really not against people. You think they are. 
you want to punch half of them, right? But the reality is, it's the spirit that's driving them. Some of these people literally are driven by an evil spirit. It doesn't mean that they're possessed or anything, you know. How would you know? Trust me, you'll know. <laughs> people that are possessed of the devil are like crazy and bizarre and going through all the weird kind of contortions. You say, we don't see that much in America. Well, because we, you know, we put these people in hospitals and lock them up. We don't really see them. Uh, in other countries, they're literally walking out all over the place, and you can see it. Uh, but anyway, these are very tormented souls who are possessed. Um, but most of the people that you run into are not, are not possessed, but they're certainly influenced by Satan. Anyone who's ever been tempted, I know most of you have never endured that. Is, where does that come from? It comes from Satan. It comes from the spirit of evil. So you know what it's like to feel and sense the presence of evil. And if you're not paying attention, sometimes you don't even catch it yourself. Like I said, you'll get really mad at someone and you want to strangle them and stuff, but you're not realizing that what's happening is either an evil spirit's prompting you to act very badly or that's what's act causing the other person to act very badly. A lot of it, these are spiritual things. So he starts talking to say this to this king and who he's talking to is the one who is inspiring this king, which is Satan himself. And immediately his terminology changes. So he says, you were the seal of perfection. Talking about Satan. God now is talking to Satan. You were perfect. You were full of wisdom. Perfect in beauty. Apparently, Satan was quite the good-looking angel. He was like a super stud. He was like the most beautiful angel. He was stunning that God would create something this magnificent. You were in the garden, Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you. Carnelian, crystallite, emerald, topaz, onyx, jasper, lapis. I don't even know what these things are anywhere. What's a barrel? <laughs> I'll get you a barrel. Uh, anyway, your settings and mountings are made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. So now, we're talking about this Eden, the garden of God. Now, we have this garden on earth that was called the garden of Eden. But I don't think this is the garden he's talking about. I think in heaven, there was this beautiful garden called Eden. And what happens on the earth, this garden is like named again for this perfect garden that God has. And this is where Satan was at. He says, you were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I adorned you, uh, ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. What's that? Oh, I have no idea. But I bet you it looked really cool. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until wickedness was found in you. Something goes wrong. Something goes terribly, horribly wrong. Again, one can only begin to speculate why. Well, we know why a little more in a minute. But how this could happen in a place of perfection, how evil could pop up. Uh, it's really, it's hard to grasp. But this is what happens. Something goes wrong, and in his heart, Satan becomes very dark. Uh, through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence, and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God, and I expelled you, guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. 
your heart became proud on account of your beauty. He was so gorgeous, it messed with him. Most of us don't have that problem. <laughs> but uh, you talk about narcissism. He is like the ultimate purest narcissist. He is so overwhelmed by his own glory that it fills him with pride. He says, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. He was so amazing, it messed with him. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings by your many sins and dishonest trade. You have desecrated your sanctuaries. Now, can you hear what's happening? It's like he's shifting back to the actual king. Did you catch a shift there? Because Satan wasn't thrown before kings. He's talking about this other king. By your many sins and dishonest trade, that's what the actual king was doing. You've desecrated your sanctuary. So I made a fire come out of you and it consumed you. I reduced you to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who are watching. All the nations who knew you are appalled at you. You have come to a horrible end and will be no more. Well, we know Satan will continue on. So there's that like, the kind of shift that we find. Um, in Isaiah, we get another picture. And this is the uh, only second one. There's only two places in the Bible that gives us a look into Satan and his motivations that caused this massive rebellion. So the realm of the dead below is all astir to come to meet you at your coming. It rouses the spirits of the departed to greet you, all those who are leaders in this, in this world. It makes them rise from their thrones, all those who are kings over the nations. Uh, what he's talking about, now, again, he's prophesying to another king, one of these kings that uh, they were having problems with. And he says, the realm of the dead is where you're headed, and the departed spirits rise to greet you. It's like a creepy nightmare. It makes them rise from their thrones, all those who are kings over the nations. They will respond. They will say to you, you also have become weak as we are and have become like us in the grave. All right, very creepy picture, like a you know, ghost of Christmas past or something weird like that. Anyway, all your pomp has been brought down to the grave along with the noise of your harps, maggots, are spread out beneath you and worms cover you. So he's, <laughs> he's letting this king know he's headed for a very bad end. <laughs> the worms crawl in, the worms crawl out. Okay, so this guy, this guy is going to die a nice miserable death because of his weakness or whatever. And then all of a sudden, the switch. How you have fallen from heaven. Well, this king hadn't been in heaven and he hadn't fallen from heaven, all of a sudden the conversation switches. And again, it makes great sense when you start to understand that what often motivates evil people is Satan. There's spirits. Again, the New Testament warns us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. People, believe it or not, are not our problem. Our problem is the spirit oftentimes that drives people. Uh, spirits of, you know, Anger, bitterness, lust. There's all kinds of crazy versions that people get caught up into uh, and they're not aware of what's going on. So all of a sudden he changes this thing. He's talking to this king, but now he's talking to the spirit that drives this king, which is Satan himself. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star. 
son of the dawn. So this is where we get a picture of Satan being referred to as a star. He was the son of the dawn. You've been cast down to where? The earth who once laid, you once laid low the nations. You said in your heart. So here's his motivation. I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, the other angels. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of Mount Zephon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds and I will make myself like the most high. So again, it's his arrogance and his pride. He wants to be like God. He wants to sit on the throne. He wants to rise above all the other angels and have them come and worship him. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. Those who stare at you, they ponder your fate. Is this the man who shook the earth and made kingdoms trouble? The man who made the world a wilderness? Again, he's talking back to this king who overthrew its cities. It would not let his captives go home. So, we know that there is this massive rebellion in heaven uh, based on that picture that we got in Revelation that he took a third of the angels with him in this rebellion when they fell. So we know what motivated him. The question I have is what did Satan say to convince a third of the angels that their lives sucked? How did he pull that off? I mean, it's one thing for him to fool us, right? We don't know Jack. We don't know nothing. We can't see anything. Everything's dark to us. And, you know, even when we come out of spiritual darkness, uh, the Bible, Paul says, I, we still see through a glass darkly. You know, this is, it's kind of, kind of foggy for us. It's really hard for us to get a real clear picture of all things spiritual. So for Satan to mess with us, um, you know, I don't know that it's even much of a challenge for him. Certainly without Christ in our lives, he has a free reign, right? He messes with everybody. And some of you think back on some of the stuff you said and did before you came to Jesus. Man, how, what was wrong with me? Oh, yeah, you were under the influence of a very dark spirit, okay? But now we come to Christ. And even in Christ, uh, things are still a little fuzzy for us because, you know, we're just seeing part. We just know in part. So for him to mess with us, for him to come and confuse us or to discourage. You ever feel discouraged? Or think, why, why am I doing this? Why get up? Why, you know, I don't want to go to church, you know. Well, it's easy for him to discourage. How do you discourage people in heaven? Stop and think. When you think about it, what this guy does, this Lucifer, this Satan, what he pulls off is rather impressive. You got to hand it to him. You know what I'm saying? The old phrase, give the devil his due. <laughs> In this case, it's like, holy cow. I mean, stop and think of the most perfect day of your life. In the most beautiful environment. Maybe you're in some great national park and waterfalls are falling or this, that, or the other. And the temperature's perfect, just like here in Green Bay. And everything's just wonderful and great. And at its most spectacular moment on this earth, the best day ever is still short of one day in heaven. 
we, lived on, we live on a fallen world, a cursed world, darkness, sin in the world. And even still, there's some beautiful places out there. I mean, it's quite stunning. What do you say to someone who lives in absolute pure perfection that they could do better? It's really stunning. And it kind of melts your gourd a little bit when you try and think about it. But as you start to peel back the layers and look into the scriptures, you can actually get a bit of a sense of what it was that maybe uh, made Satan and these angels think they could take God. Now stop and think about it. Nobody does a rebellion if they don't think they're going to win. Nobody does that. What bunch of guys say, yeah, let's overthrow the government. We're all going to get killed. Nobody thinks that. They all think, we're going to win. We can do this. We can pull this off. We make the plans. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. They clearly felt, without question in their minds, they could take God. Now, how in the world could they do that? So what, is, what are the motivations? Now, this is pure speculation on my part. But I think it has merit as we get into the scriptures and, and I'll show you what we're looking at. So, I mean, if anybody looks at this, oh, I don't agree, you're not getting an argument from me, it's speculation. I don't know, you know. But here's my guess. I think there's three arguments that Satan used to, you know, why, why we should rebel against God. Number one is my speculation. God doesn't really care. Now, I, I say that because it is the one argument that most people struggle with. It's the one thing God will stick in your, the devil, I'm sorry, will stick in your head. God doesn't really care about you. He doesn't really love you. Right? This is the doubt that, you know, why does he care about me? I'm a nothing. I'm a nobody. I'm, you know, he's got lots of stuff to do. He's busy. Why would he mess with me? I still think Satan brings his best argument. I mean, it worked pretty spectacularly, you have to admit, the first time. And it has worked spectacularly for thousands of years on people. God doesn't care about you and has assaulted people of faith with this very line of thought over and over again. So he doesn't really care. So if there's a disconnect there. Uh, number two, I'm speculating. Uh, he really doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> and I'm going to show you how, from the scriptures, how I think that's what he got. And number three, he's not all that strong as I'm dinging here. So, this one's easy because there's no way they would try to take him and say, we can take Almighty God on his throne, you know, and, and all his glory. Clearly, we can take him. 
You wouldn't think that unless you were absolutely, positively convinced you could do it. So there was something about God that they think they doubted that he's really as strong as he says he is. We can take him. Well, we know the first of these that is answered is this one. Because he just hammers their butts. <laughs> okay? They come at him. I don't know how this goes down. They've got to think we can pull this off. And from the inclinations, the Lord just flicks them like a booger. And, and down they go crashing. I think they were shocked and mortified beyond any horror they could have ever dreamed. They went to take him. And it just says, every implication, I just threw you down. You just think, yeah. And they wound up on this rock called earth. And as we saw in the second verse of Genesis, darkness was on the face of the deep. It was without void. It was just a big mess. There's nothing there. Because all of a sudden, boom, these creatures land and create all kinds of uh, horrible havoc. Now, it's, again, this is all true speculation. You have no idea, was there life on the earth ahead of time before this happened? Um, we do know there is a major inconsistency, you know, with dinosaurs and all this. And all of a sudden, everything just freezes. What happens to everything? No one really knows. Um, scientists think there was a great meteor that fell to the earth. Yeah. <laughs> they might be closer than they realize. There was a big meteor that hit the earth all right. His name was Satan and all these monkeys that went with him. And his massive impact on the earth changed everything. Ecosystem, water just goes crashing everywhere. Which uh, still, if you think about it, the majority of the earth overwhelmingly is covered by water. You know, the overwhelming majority of it. I mean, we're, the little land that we're on is still the smallest parts of what's on this planet. So I don't know what happens, but anyway, something major happens, and maybe that's when all the dinosaurs and everything cease. And who, I don't know. I'm making this. I have no idea. I wasn't there. Joe, Joe was there, but I, I was, I was there. All right. So apparently, question three is settled. Apparently, God is strong, stronger than anyone had dreamed. And I do think they were mortified by what had happened. But it doesn't answer the other questions. All we know at this point is, okay, we can take him. Oops, I was wrong. But it doesn't answer these yet. God, does God really care? And does he really know what he's doing? All that we see now is the might of God. And... For the sake of our argument here, might doesn't necessarily mean right, right? Let's say someone is a uh, powerful drug lord in the city of Chicago and decides he doesn't want you on this planet anymore. <laughs> he sends up his henchmen and puts you in concrete boots and drops in the middle of Lake Michigan, you know. Ooh, these guys are strong. Doesn't make the king right, the, the drug kid right, you know what I'm saying? They just don't say he's strong. 
Okay? Or you could have someone who's really powerful in front of a, of, of a nation, does all kinds of horrible things. Just because they're strong doesn't mean it's right. Might doesn't necessarily mean right. And it does answer the question. They thought they could take him. Well, they couldn't. God is strong beyond anything anyone had ever dreamed. But what about what, about what, what happened here? Uh, so I gave you these three questions, and we're going to answer from the third on up. So the third, obviously, is settled right away. The second one, this one is fascinating. Does God really know what he's doing? Now, let me show you how, from the scriptures, they could have possibly gotten this idea. So I'm going to look, at, I want us to look at 2 Kings, uh, 1 Kings, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 Kings. This is, the 1 and 2 Kings are all about the kings of Israel, from David, Saul was uh, the first king, then David, and then, you know, all these kings. And uh, there's this guy named Ahab, and he's really a bad guy. And there were some really horrible kings, and they talked about how evil they were, and God's patience with these people is beyond comprehension. If you think God's mad at you because you haven't got your jack together yet, just read First and Second Kings. I mean, apparently he's very patient because he keeps warning them, I'm going to destroy you if you don't stop. And it just goes on and on. Halfway through the book, you're yelling, kill him already. I can't take it anymore. But he's really patient. I mean, what they do to egging God on, finally, after years and hundreds of years, he finally lays the hammer down and they lost their nation and was without their own nation uh, for thousands of years. Even at the time when Jesus came, they still weren't in control of their own nation. The Romans were in control of their nation. They were scattered for a long time. It wasn't until recently, 1954, was it? That all of a sudden Israel is born and they have their own nation. But what has just happened is still, just not that long ago, is really rather fascinating. Uh, that all of a sudden, boom, that's why a lot of people think that the end is coming near because so much of the old prophecies of the end have to do with Israel. Well, there wasn't an Israel. Now there is. So it's setting the stage. But anyway, they go through and they, they mention all these kings and uh, they spend quite a bit of time talking about this one king, Ahab. He's just a horrible human being. And uh, um, his wife, what's her name? Uh, Jezebel. Jezebel. <laughs> so, you know, if you ever hear someone refer to a really mean-spirited, horrible woman, she's just nothing but a Jezebel. <laughs> because what they're talking about is this woman in the Bible described who is this horrible person. And to this day, I don't know that anybody has ever named their daughters Jezebel, okay? So, I mean, this, this, she was bad, bad, really bad news. So, anyway, let's pick it up. Chapter 22 of 1 Kings. Now, for three years, there was no war between Aram and Israel. But in the third year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went down to see the king of Israel, which is always confusing on a map because Israel is up. And Judah is down, but he goes down to see Israel, uh, the sky. Obviously, they didn't have maps like we have them. But he goes down to see the king of Israel. Remember, the uh, country is split now. You, you had the 12 tribes under King David and King Solomon. Then there was a major split, and you've got Judah here. Uh, and the rest of all the tribes is, is called Israel, the, the uh, kingdom of Israel. 
These guys are up in Samaria. They eventually become the Samaritans. Judah are the ones who stay pure to the faith. And that's why they started becoming called Jews because of the kingdom of Judah. This is what Jesus came through uh, this bunch down here. All right, so, so Judah goes to check out the king of Israel. Um, he's really ticked off because they lost uh, some land uh, to this king Aram. So we get together. The king of Israel had said to his officials, don't you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us? And yet we're doing nothing to retake it from King Aram. He's ticked. So he asked Jehoshaphat, the other king, will you go with me to fight against Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat replied to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. In other words, all I got is yours. Let's go get it. But Jehoshaphat also said to the king of Israel, but first seek the counsel of the Lord. So he's trying to encourage him. To, you know, let's, let's check in with God here to uh, see what we should do. So the king of Israel brought together the prophets. There's 400 of them. And he asked them, shall I go to war against Ramoth Gilead or should I reflect, refrain? Go, they said, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. But Jehoshaphat, he's not really comfortable. Again, it's two different kingdoms. He's not really comfortable hearing what the prophets have to say, you know, here. And, you know, don't we got a local guy? <laughs> anyway, we can check with. And uh, there's a no longer a prophet of the Lord here whom we can inquire of. And the king of Israel answered Jehoshaphat, well, there's still one prophet through whom we inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad. His name is, I'll just say Micah. I don't know how you actually pronounce that, but Micah's close enough for me. Son of Imla. And then Jehoshaphat said, oh, the king should not say such a thing. You know, he's a prophet. Don't, don't mess with these guys. So the king of Israel called one of his officials and said, go get him. Because apparently this guy, wherever they're meeting, this is the local prophet, and Israel, the king of Israel, hates this guy. And they decide to uh, go get him. So, uh, so the king of Israel calls and says, uh, bring him to at once. So dressed in their royal robes, the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones at the threshing floor by the entrance of the gate of Samaria with all the prophets prophesying before them. Now Zedekiah, son of whoever, had made iron horns and he declared this is what the Lord said with these you will gore the Arameans until they're destroyed and all the other prophets were prophesying the same thing attack Ramoth Gilead you'll be victorious for the Lord will give it into the king's hands and the messenger who had gone to summon Micah uh, says to him look dude the other prophets without exception, are all predicting success. Uh, just go along, okay? Let your word agree with theirs. Speak favorably. And the prophet says, as surely as the Lord lives, I can tell him only what the Lord tells me. But when he gets there, he says, when he arrived, the king asked him, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead or not? Now, what we have here is what's written. We don't have how he says it. Clearly in the context of what happens next, he says it very snarkily or with a bad attitude. 
Attack and be victorious. The Lord will give it into the king's hand. Well, the king knows he's full of it, and he's not telling him what he really thinks. So, um, uh, the king says, how many times must I make you swear and tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And then the prophet changes. And he says, all right. I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, these people have no master. Let each one go, to his, go home in peace. So he basically says, I see a disaster coming. And the king of Israel says to Jehoshaphat, say, didn't I tell you that he never promises anything good about me? Only bad. And the prophet continues, says, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. And he has a vision into heaven. All right? Uh, he says, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the multitudes of heaven standing around him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab, this king of Israel, into attacking Ramoth Gilead and going to his death there? So God is sitting around. He's at the throne. All these angels, everybody's hanging out around the throne. And he hears and sees this conversation. God is saying, how are we going to get this guy? How are we going? Now stop and think about that. This is God. How many of you think God knew exactly how to get him? Yeah, I think pretty easy call for him. Why is he asking people, or angels in this case, for advice? Now, in retrospect now, as we know about God, we know that he loves to hear from his creation. The implication of this, we're going to get into as we get into this, these next uh, several first Mondays, and it has to do with the power of prayer and why God loves to hear from you about what you think he should do. It's really fascinating, and we're going to get it. It just keeps getting deeper and deeper. Uh, but uh, So God's asking, um, what do you think we should do? Who's going to entice them? And one angel suggested this, and apparently the guy goes, nah. And another suggested that, nah. No. I don't know how discouraging that would be for the angel. <laughs> right? Give God some, I ain't saying nothing to him. He dissed me the last time I brought something up. You know what I mean? It's just like, so he's getting, they're getting put down in front of God and all the other, that, nah, that's, 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 that's a dumb idea. Finally, a spirit comes forward and stood before the Lord and says, I'll entice him. And the Lord says, how are you going to do it? Now, how many of you think God knew what he was going to do? Are you catching this? This is a picture of heaven. Three times we're going to see where there is a vision in heaven. And the impl implication is that as they're looking, it appears God doesn't know what to do. Wow. Now we're going to build into this and you're going to see how powerful this is and how wonderful God is in allowing his creation to speak to him. It's really rather fascinating. But it's this kind of stuff I think Satan was seeing all the time. 
And I think he finally goes, you know, I don't think he knows what he's doing. <laughs> Why does he keep asking? Why does he keep asking us our opinions? Are you getting a picture here? Remember, there had to be something that sold these angels on the fact they could take him. There had to be a reason that they were thinking, you know, I think we could do better. Because they got the wrong impression from God's graciousness. Are you getting the opinion here? The, the picture here? Okay, so this final angel says, he says, well, how are you going to do it? He says, well, I'll go out and I'll be a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all his prophets. So everything we just read is because there is an angel from the Lord whispering in the ear of these prophets, yeah, go ahead, you're going to win. Yeah, go ahead, you're going to win. So all 400 of them are going, I'm hearing from God. You're going to win, you're going to win, you're going to But it's all a trap. The only one who knows this is Micah the prophet. Uh, so God says, that's a great idea. I like this idea. You will succeed in entice him. Now go and do it. So off this guy does, and he goes off and do this. So now the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all these prophets of yours. The Lord has decreed disaster for you. Then Zedekiah, son of whatever, went up and slapped Micah in the face. Tush! Now which way did the spirit from the Lord go when he went from me to speak to you? Micah replied, you'll find out on the day you go hide in an inner room. So something bad's going to happen to this guy. Well, the king of Israel then orders, take this guy, send him back to Ammon, the ruler of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, this is what the king says, put this fellow in prison and give him nothing but bread and water till I return safely. And the prophet declares, if you ever return safely, then the Lord has not spoken through me. Mark my words, all you people. And of course, he never returns safely. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went up to Ramoth Gilead. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, we will enter the battle in disguise, but you wear your royal robes. So the king of Israel disguised himself, went into battle. I don't know why. But uh, this was his plan. Uh, the other king didn't. He was dressed in royal robes. Now the king of Aram had ordered his 32 chariot commanders, don't fight with anyone, small or great, except the king of Israel. Well, he's, you know, disguised. When the chariot commanders saw Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat said, surely this is the king of Israel. So they turned to attack him. But when Jehoshaphat cried out, uh, the chariot commander saw it wasn't the king of Israel and they stopped pursuing him. But someone drew his bow at random. And hit the king of Israel between the sections of his armor. The odds of that shot are astronomically low. Just a random arrow goes, and in the one little spot between his armor, hits him right there. The king told his chariot driver, wheel around, get me out of the fighting, I've been wounded. And all day long the battle raged and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Arameans. The blood from his wound ran onto the floor of his chariot and that evening he died. And what everything that uh, Micah had said came to pass. The fascinating thing is what happens as he looks into heaven and sees us. Now next first Wednesday, we're going to pick it up from here. I'm going to show you another place in the Bible where it, God, he gets a vision into heaven and God is asking, what are we going to do? It's really fascinating. It really is. And then we're going to show you a third time, which is even really weird. 
weirder than the first two, where apparently God can be talked into things. I mean, it's fascinating. I'm telling you, if, if this is what they're seeing in heaven, this had to play into the thinking of these angels who thought maybe he doesn't really know what he's doing. When in fact, he knows exactly what he's doing. But he loves to hear from his creation. By the time we're done with this, you're going to feel very inspired to pray. Because it is amazing. God wants to hear from you. Which is really different than a lot of what we hear in Christianity. So much of Christianity is like, just do what the Lord tells you to do. Just do what the Lord tells you to do. Listen to God. Just be obedient. Do what the Lord. You know what I'm talking about? You hear this, right? Isn't it interesting? Jesus didn't go around saying, just do what the Lord tells you to do. You know what he went around says? Tell God what you want him to do. Ask him. Ask him. Freak out the cameraman here. Ask him. What do you want? Ask God what he wants to do. Hey, you, ask him. You, over there, make sure you ask him. What you, that was Jesus constantly saying to people, ask God, what is it you want to see God do? Which really messes with your head when you have this mentality, well, God just tells everybody everything to do. Apparently, he does not. Now, does he at times tell people specifically things to do? Without question. And we see this throughout the New Testament. And if God really speaks to you to do something, you better do it. <laughs> You don't, don't want to get in a bad place with God. But it's not, everything's not all just predetermined as some people think and that we're just also sit around and just wait for voices. We're supposed to be active in the kingdom of God and through our prayers, we're supposed to be asking God and influencing the direction of God. Now, there's different things that, you know, you're not going to be able to talk God into the sun not rising tomorrow, I'm pretty sure. Now, there's some stuff that's set in stone. You, you know what I'm talking about? But there's parts of your life where he really wants to hear from you. And I think when you look at it, that's the positive of it. That God wants to hear from us. The negative of it, which I, again, pure conjecture, I think is what gave Satan and these angels, they read it the wrong way, thinking, I, I'm, not, I'm not really sure he knows what's going on. Why does he keep asking us for advice? Well, the answer, of course, is because he loves to hear from his creation. Anyway, we're going to get into this as we, we pick it up. We'll probably go another one or two of these as we get. Actually, it, it might unfold in, even into some more stuff. There's really fascinating stuff here. All right? So that's where we left off. Bring your Bibles with you next time so you can flip through the pages with me and see where everything is. All right? Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your word and for your truth. Help us to learn what is happening why are we here? What is going on? And grow from our faith and insights as a result. In Jesus' name we pray and everybody said, amen. amen. I'll give you a, a little sneak preview. What's happening here is, is, is the greatest halftime in the history of the universe. That's what's happening here. This isn't done. This major rebellion is not done. This is just the major butt kicking and then there's this calm. And God starts creating the earth. And I'm going to show you some stuff. It's going to really open up your minds and stuff. But all of this is merely, it's a long halftime for us, thousands and thousands of years. But it's just, in heaven, this is nothing. God is answering in you answers to some of these questions. So that never again throughout the history of the universe will anyone ever bring up these questions again. And he's going to do it with you. Then once this halftime is over and Jesus comes back, and everything resets and we keep going forward. So it's real fascinating. We'll look at some of the stuff in the end times that's going to tie this all together. All right, I'm done.
Awesome.